In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're all having a beautiful day. Hope the sun is shining. I got an incredible guest. I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite some time. The one and only Adam Tapp from Tapped In, from Tapped In Psychedelics Podcast, the co-founder of Avail Scientific. Incredible individual, great storyteller, intelligent guy, fun to talk to, and uh, stoked you're here, Adam. How's it going, man? Good, man. I, I appreciate you having me on your show. And as always, your energy is fantastic. I'm all fired up now just from that brief interlude right there. <laughs> so let's get this going, man. Yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure, man. Like I, I, I check out, first off, for those listening right now, the Tapped In Podcast, I think is hands down one of the best in the psychedelic realm. You should be winning awards. Man, you have really unique people on there. And the way you carry conversations with people is engaging and fun. And it's fun for the audience, man. Just wanted to throw that out there. I really appreciate that, actually, because, you know, it, it's funny not not to shit on other people's podcasts, but I feel like a lot of them, it's it's more just you speak and we'll all listen. And, and as opposed to like in really engaging with someone right. and just trying to have a really honest conversation about psychedelics a, as a whole, you know, not just one specific aspect of it, which has been really enjoyable for me to get into that. And the amount that I've learned just simply by talking to all these really amazing people is phenomenal, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the podcast as a vehicle. Like you have this vehicle where you can pick people up. Hey, get in the car for a little bit. Let's go for a little ride over here. You know, chit chat a little bit back and forth and see it from that angle. Yeah, like a vehicle for growth at the very least. Like, you know what I mean? And, and if if my listeners gain even a fraction yeah. of what I've gained from just having these interviews with people, yeah. then it's, it's fantastic in itself. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to to... And it's a new medium, I think. It's sort of like this new way of engaging people. So that's why there, there is at times like this side monologue that goes back and forth because people are trying to figure out, hey, what is it like to be on this side of the mic? Or what's it like to be on that side of the mic? It's, is there any, we got any tips or tricks or is it just a conversation for you? Or how do you manage that? I feel like the very first couple episodes I did, I was still trying to figure out how to engage with people 
in this manner uh, on this yeah. platform. You know, like I, I've been a paramedic for 20 years, you know, almost all of my job is communicating with people in a variety yeah. of different situations, but then sitting down and then, you know, not leading someone in conversation, but asking questions that allow them to express themselves and the nuances yeah. of what they're trying to say is I, I'd say it's arguably a little bit difficult. You know what I mean? Like you, you do it quite frequently. I, I'd imagine you get the same concept, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's fascinating that as a paramedic, you're constantly, it seems to me that you're, you're dealing with different states of awareness all the time. Like first off, you got some code red or something like that. Heart rate's probably going, you pick up, you go to a place where someone may have had a heart attack. You're dealing with maybe a mom or a daughter or a family member who's in a different state of consciousness, not to mention the person that may have had an accident to them. Like, yeah, how is it dealing with that, man? Well, I, I would say it's it's maybe a misconception, probably okay. from you know generalized media and yeah. TV that everything we go to is just this massive catastrophe. The vast majority of stuff we go to is someone has tummy pain, someone has this, mm. someone has that, and then as you progressively work up the ladder to like fractures and increased severity, like I'd probably say only ten percent of the stuff that we do is severe and, and requires medical intervention in this moment. And, but, but then again, the idea that at any given point in time, anything can happen in that 12 hour shift is sort of a unique thing that you have to adapt to over a career. Like I find it can break certain people, just the anticipation of at any given point in time, something truly terrible can happen. And I have to basically deal with it or, or make order out of a very chaotic situation, which I kind of classified as to some extent. How it like that seems to me that you had to form a relationship with uncertainty. Like you said, that can break some people, you know, not knowing what's going to happen or all of a sudden so, there is an emergency like that. What what's your relationship with uncertainty? I've always found it thrilling. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny that I don't think there is another job better suited to me and my personality, mm -hmm. but you really have to grapple with that. No one just goes into that job and is completely accepting of of the uncertainty. And I found that I know early on, I think like three, four, five years in, it, it was starting to get to me where you're like, oh my God, like there could be a dead kid in the next three minutes. Like I, I need to get, I need to prepare myself. And then it just kind of, I just dumbed it down. Like, you know, our protocols are relatively simplistic and, and I, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but I mean, like if you break everything down and try not to overcomplicate things, then it, it gets a little bit easier. You get there. Are they breathing? Do they, you know what I mean? Like you go through it and, and you just reduce the complexity of something and it becomes a lot easier. And the uncertainty is just having confidence in yourself to handle the situation. Like, you know, any paramedic who's gone through training is capable of dealing with the situation. It's the emotional component of it that I think people find difficult and that over time can wear on people rather significantly. I bring it up because I think that there's a there's an interesting parallel between like the psychedelic trip and different states of awareness and you know uncertainty and emotional emotional roller coasters. Like have you noticed there to be like a little Ariadne thread that connects those things together? Well yeah completely like you know it <laughs> You, you get into a psychedelic experience and in larger right, ones, you know, right. like people talk about larger threshold doses and stuff like that. And I find like the biggest fear that I've come across with other people and myself early on is just that uncertainty. What is going to yeah. happen if, if I let go and submit to this? Do I come back? You know, what or what does come back from this? Will I be able to function in society? And 
and the uncertainty of EMS and first responders has like that interesting similarity in the sense of just letting go and sort of submitting to the uncertainty, the very nature of it, and just trying to respond within it as opposed to fighting it. As a paramedic, have you ever been called to a place where someone was just tripping their balls off? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I, <laughs> I feel I'm very comfortable in those calls because I'm like, hey, you know, not so many words. I know what's going on. Let's reel this in. And it, it's, it's actually kind of funny how many people get naked on a bunch of mushrooms. And whether they're jumping in a car in the middle of the winter. Oh, yeah, totally. Me too. Or in their own home or something. Yep. And a lot of the time, too, it stems back to these existential ideas of existence. And usually when someone's in the, in the middle of a very big psychedelic experience, that ideas of existence and what it means to exist comes into play or more importantly not existing and i think that it's it's one of those weird existential threats that you know is present in all of us but when it's thrust in front of you and you have to work through it it's yeah it can rise in panic and and and, and a lot of these people i can say all had the exact same thing they didn't have a sitter mm -hmm. they didn't prepare themselves perhaps in the best possible way, but at the end of the day, they didn't have a calming voice being like, Hey, it's okay. You know, you want to get naked. That's fine, but let's not go outside. Let's, you know, let's go <laughs> back over here and sit and, you know, ride this out. Yeah. It's interesting how that happens. And you know, you bring up a question about, um, coming back from a trip. Sometimes I feel like, I never really come back the same. Like a little part of me changes. Maybe that's maybe it's an idea that changes. Maybe it's a view that changes. But and sometimes maybe it's because I look for that change. But how do you feel about that? Do you think you always come back the same, or you come back to baseline, or what about bringing something back? You know, even even as time goes, I'm different than I was a second ago yep, with or without agreed. psychedelics. You know, what I mean, like every experience we have micro or macro changes us ever so slightly. And, and we are literally a byproduct of every single femtosecond of existence previous to this moment. And so, you know, you go into a cycle experience and, and I find coming out of a large experience to be hectic. You know, you're, mm. you're coming back to yourself. You're coming back to your notions of your ego identity. Yeah. And, and I don't think I've ever come out of a psychedelic experience not changed. But, but I think the difference is that the gradual change of just simply being alive versus the very brunt, significant change in perception coming out of a, a larger psychedelic experience is it's quite significant. Like I, I've come out of some before where I'm like, I am permanently altered to my core. And I've always found it to be a good thing. I guess that's quite subjective, mind you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it was Terrence McKenna who said, if you've taken an amount where you don't say immediately afterwards, oh shit, I've taken too much, I'm gonna die, then you haven't taken enough. <laughs> I actually agree with that. Like I've, you know, I, I've been probably doing psychedelics pretty solidly for over a decade, which is not much compared to some people. And, and I guess it's not a competition, but you know, you start doing them and, 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 you, and you see the capacity for change within yourself. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things that psychedelics does early on is gives you, self-awareness you know awareness of yourself because if you've only ever been looking through one single linear perspective and then all of a sudden you get lifted up and you're seeing yourself as this profoundly complex whole and recognizing the difference between the the multitude of coping mechanisms we we construct around ourselves 
and then see how a single thought or emotion gets so deeply warped by the time it comes out to be expressed. They know from that moment on, you're like, okay, so I see the complexity and I see the capacity for change within that. But, you know, I, I do firmly believe that the greatest thing that psychedelics provide is just sheer self-awareness. Hmm. Yeah. The ability to express yourself in different forms and ways after a deep psychedelic experience has been transformative for me. Maybe that's because I, I feel on some level you're given this perspective change. For a moment, you get to go to the mountaintop and see yourself in like this third party or something like that. Or you know, for, maybe someone would explain it differently. But for me, it's, it's always this incredible radical shift in perspective that reveals to me something I can do to change my life. And like that, that has been so therapeutic for me on so many levels, man. How do you describe, have you noticed that as well? Or is there something similar that happens to you or what's your take on that? Yeah. Well, you know, so I, I did LSD and psilocybin right. and MDMA when I was a teenager and right. that was, you know, the rave scene and different things. Sure. And then I just, I quote unquote became an adult. I went to school and I just stopped doing psychedelics because that's not what you do. And then I just resulted to the old fashioned whiskey, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and I, and I feel like just independent of just the stressors of life. I think yeah. it was accumulating stressors from the career, you know, you see yeah. dead kids and people ripped apart and you don't have the opportunity to express yourself or the, the sheer terror of what's going on in front of you because if I did that, then I'd be like everyone else around screaming and, and panicking. So you, you really have to swallow a lot of things. And I remember the first psychedelic I did as an adult, and I say adult subjectively, but you know, in the ages of, of thirties and so forth was Iboga. And mm. I feel that it was a dark, dark and grimy, gritty grind through myself. And I feel like the biggest part of that was letting go you know what i mean like just letting go of all these things i'm holding on to these things that i think are imperative to my identity and these things are imperative to my you know survival and just letting go and you know in, in a way i feel like all these emotional memories i had just thrown away like dirty wet laundry and they were just stuck in this hamper and they were fermenting and and just off-gassing and the whole iboga experience was literally like putting them in the laundry and washing them and drying them and folding them and putting them away. You know, it wasn't about removing these or excising these from my psyche. It was about just processing them and putting them back. And it was, you know, in a way it was like I built this dystopian city of coping mechanisms and these weird distorted ideas and then just destroying it all. And, you know, the next day I felt literally reborn. Like I just felt like I was glowing. And I was like, oh my God, like this, how have I been living before this? How have I been holding the weight of all of this weird subjective pressure that I've been, you know, just forcing myself to look through? And it, it was like stunning and profound and life-changing. And then, and then after that, I was like, oh my God, I need, I need to explore this space. I, I need to like really look at myself profoundly and objectively and and try and work through all the things that I've been holding on to. You know, it's, it was almost this idea that, you know, from a very young age, you know, you're born and you're sort of given a name and you're, mm. you emulate your parents and then you start emulating your peer groups and behavior is either encouraged or not encouraged. And you start creating this identity. And 
you know, at some point in time, it almost seems like in the path to do this, you just create all these interesting coping mechanisms and they become these rigid structures surrounding you. And you're just trying to see to the other side. And it was amazing to me how obvious it was after that big psychedelic experience and how completely inobvious it was to me before. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was just... I'm just living. I'm alive. This is, this is how it is. This weird layers of anxiety that I experience all the time are normal. And, and then having that experience and seeing that there is arguably a much better way to live is earth shattering to some extent. Yeah. Or certainly psyche, psyche shattering. It's interesting, like so, like you have had, uh, on some level, I would like, I would like you to, if you're okay with it, to explain. I know you've had a huge, gargantuan trip on mushrooms, and I'm, I'm hopeful you can talk about that because I would like to hear the difference between the iboga trip and the mushroom trip. There's probably some similarities, some differences, but I'm, I, in order before we can do that, you have to share with people the the mushroom experience. Yeah, so you know, iboga was the first one, and it, it okay. wasn't like iboga was me stepping you know dipping my toes in the water and I, I think at some point i slipped in up to my waist in that experience but that and, one was like eight hours or something like a bog is a long oh one, it was right? more than eight hours man it was probably right. like 14 or 16 Woo! hours of like in it and then even there was this period where time. it tricked me into thinking i was going to die and having to come to terms with mortality and then it let me out of it after that so it, it was like layers upon layers it was like inception you know a dream within a dream within a dream <laughs> yeah totally and it was and it was interesting. And, but again, too, right? Like every, every psychedelic has its own nuance to it. You know, sure. like I, I boga, some people say it's like the stern patriarchal figure. And, and I get that. Like it, it was stern. It was, it was tough love. It was like, Hey, look at this, deal with this. We're not going anywhere. You bought the ticket, you take the ride. Right. Whereas I find psilocybin is more, I don't want to say ethereal, but there, there's, it lacks gender. It lacks mm. judgment. It lacks context of human behavior. And I know like, you know, we started doing mushrooms after that, my wife and I. I know we did like, you know, the, the two grams and then five grams and then 10 and then 20 and then 30. And then we ended up <laughs> doing 42 grams of dried psilocybin oh! cubensis mushrooms each. Well, and it's and it sounds insane, but like Kalindi Isles, who has, you know, he did all this thing and he was a proponent of these 28 gram trips. And I remember reading that being like, wow, like that's insane. And then we kind of worked our way up to it. I'm like, there is still so much more in this space. Yeah. But I think at 42 grams, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was one of those things. It was like I, my wife and I, we merged into one singular, undeconstructed thing that was just simply existing. And it was like the creation of consciousness, the creation of life, and it was wild. And even coming out of it, like the trip roughly lasted the same as with the five gram experience but the intensity like it probably lasted another hour maybe right but coming out of it was just one time loop after another time loop after another time loop like the experience itself was beautiful it was visceral it was it was everything but coming out of it was really hard it was just one like literally a time loop i remember standing at the sink at one point in time and i was drinking a glass of water and i put it down and all of a sudden it just the glass fractured in my hand and it was like, I had done this an infinite number of times. And I, and I was like, just looking at the glass and it wasn't broken or anything, right. but it was just staring at it. And I'm like, I have done this an infinite number of times. 
And I just sat there staring at it for what appeared to be ever. And then all of a sudden I kind of snapped out of it in another time loop and then another yeah. time loop. And, you know, I think my wife afterwards, she was like, that was the closest I ever came to losing my mind. And I'm like, dude, we lost our minds like yeah. a thousand times in that. We just found it like it's, but then again, too, like, you know, doing that with someone else, right? I, I, like our relationship is so honest and authentic to some extent. Like you, you can't have that experience with someone else and merge together like that and just go through the passage of time and eons and billions of years of just simply existing and then come out of it and not be like, hey, <laughs> I understand you. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah, there's something very interesting about that and now that experience too like you know the dose of iboga i did wasn't mm -hmm. spectacularly high by any means it was what i i think my the friend of mine who facilitated for me said that it was you know uh, a spiritual dose so it wasn't a flood dose like you would do for opioid cessation or anything like mm -hmm. that so i i think what i got was fairly standard but you know with the psilocybin we pursued it till i got to a point where i perceived i couldn't go any further without it just being static yeah. Did you, I've noticed on some higher doses, like I've gone as high as like 18. And for me, there were, it was the first time I had really noticed, maybe I'm 14 too, but I noticed that there was like a multiple peaks for me. Like I came up and then it was like, and there was another come up afterwards. Like yeah. I, and yeah. at that higher realm, there was a more clear vision at, at like eight or 10 for me, you would get to the spot and it was irretrievable to bring stuff back. But I learned at 14 or 18, all of a sudden there was a clarity there. It's like, oh shit. Like I remember this now, you know, on some level. Wait, have you, have you, yeah. what's your take on that? I, I totally agree with that. I find like in and around the 20, like it, you really have to dissolve yourself. Yeah. Because I, I don't think people realize how much we get in our own way. Yep. You know what I mean? And in these lower doses, don't get me wrong. They're therapeutic. They're cathartic. You can, you can work through all kinds of things, but in these higher doses, you're, you just you're being removed from your own way. Like this, you can't possibly get in front of yourself, and you just <laughs> let a go. Way to put it, yeah. You know what I mean? Like we we are always our, our own worst enemies in almost yep. every aspect of our life, and and I find in like these high doses like that, you know, twenty plus probably, and then I feel like at around the forty two was different than I think the one previous to that was thirty, and then the forty two was just there was it was just absolute clarity. It was just perfect clarity. And it wasn't really, you know, it was almost like within its simplicity was perfection. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. You no, know, it wasn't like these fractals and this and that. It was right. just perfection and clarity. Wow. I'm always amazed at the relationship to language that psychedelics have. You often bump up against the ineffable. And that's what we described about, you know, wanting to bring something back or, you know, bumping shoulders with an idea, but, you know, not really putting your arm around it, if that makes sense. But <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, I, I find that language, you know, it, it's an interesting, like language has developed to describe the things around us. Yes. You know what I mean? And then yep. and as we've been able to look further and, and look smaller, we've adapted language to that, but it doesn't have that much meaning. We can't really mm, understand it. Yep. Like, you know, you yeah. can tell me a billion people. I don't know what the fuck that means. Like, I, I get it. I can't really visualize it or a right. trillion stars or, you know, quantum entanglements and, and these particles that both vibrate and take form with observation. Like, I understand the concept, but I don't understand it. And I find yeah. that with 
using language to describe a psychedelic experience, it's almost like you're, you're taking that experience, you're putting it in a box with the constraints of language. You know what I mean? And then, then you, you just limited it. You know, a lot of people, like I've been privy to a couple psychedelic trips and I find I always tell people, I'm like, don't try and explain it. Don't put it into words because you're going to limit mm. for yourself as well. You know, the moment you yeah. try and categorize this and explain it, you're, you're limiting for yourself and just inadequately describing a profound experience of someone else. It's more like just sit with it and be with it. Don't try and analyze it. Just let it, let it work through you. You know, you want to journal something great. You want to talk about it, give it a day or two. You know, it's, I almost find one of the worst things that someone can do is come out and be like, and this, and this, and this, and then you kind of falter off and you're like, yeah, it's words don't describe something because the words weren't meant for that. Yeah. One of my favorite, uh, Alan Watts quotes is he's like, what's the true name of God? Who cares? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Man? It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> And, and God is such a loaded term too. You so know what I mean? loaded, like, man. So loaded. It is. Like God is is almost immediately drawn into theocracy and people get these ideas <laughs> of this bearded sky daddy casting totally. judgment. And it's like, fair, you know, we, North America or even Western culture itself, you know, whether you're secular, you come from a secular family and all these different things, it's the undercurrent of theocracy, like passive theocracy that just simply exists. Like I'm not Christian, but I know what a cross insinuates. I, I know, you know, these interesting ideas of shame and guilt that permeate Catholicism are, are sort of in all of us just, you know, by simply being in this culture. And so it is difficult to separate these undercurrents or perhaps subconscious iconography that, that we see in, in sociology with what's actually going on around us. But, you know, I guess that's sort of, working through the fog to some extent to try and see what's on the other side. It brings up some interesting questions about the world of psychedelic, the, the medical container. Sometimes I get worried or trip out about the medical container today in which we see psychedelics. You have all this integration going on and you know, it's like, I, I get it on some level trying to help people with PTSD or some kind of mental disorders, but it seems so limiting to me. Like, the, the medical container seems like such a small container. Like there's so much more out there, you know, and then you start, I start talking to people about integration and oh, you got to integrate, you got to integrate, but it's just words, right? Like on some level, are you really helping people with integration? What, what's your take on, on, on this new wave of medical container integration, all this stuff? I, it's one of those things, like how do you adapt something so esoteric and profound yeah. into a rationalistic materialistic yep. system of medicine? And I, I've talked with that with a number of people on my show, whether it's academics or doctors or whatever. It's like, how do you how do you see these things integrating? Mm. You know, how does how does the mystical experiences derived by a higher dose psychedelic experience fit into our perception of Western medicine, where we still think that oh, this is just neurons firing, or this is you know a hallucination that has no truth or merit, and people can't explain it, but things in our, our Western system of medicine require explanation. And so it, it almost seems like in, in an attempt to bang this star through a, a square hole, we're, we're applying things to it to give it reflections in what we perceive as Western medicine. And I don't think that's an easy process. And I don't know how it happens. You know, I, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that someone's doing it right or wrong, but right. I feel that you're almost replacing ritualism with medical advice in that sense surrounding these mm. things where it's like you need to set intention you need integration 
And the consistency that every single person I've had on my podcast who is a facilitator or something is always, you need to set intention. Integration is the most important thing. And I don't disagree with that, but I've never set an intention. You know, like my, my tension that I always set simply is I love you and I trust you. And I just go in because oddly enough, you know, there's a part of me that knows what I need far more than Adam right. does. And I don't want to sound crazy, but like, you know, <laughs> up until recently, like how has my, you know, advice for myself been working? No, it's been fucking terrible. You know, like here, drink some whiskey, do this. Be, you know, don't be vulnerable to anyone because they will stab you in the back and, and hurt you. You know what I mean? So it's like setting intentions, doing this. I find it's just another mechanism of control mm. that we exert on ourselves and the experience. And and that might work for people. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying it doesn't work for me. And I've always just surrendered to the experience and come out with things that are relevant to my self-improvement. You know, if, if I've ever sat there and be like, I want to deal with this time that someone said this to me and that, or I want to deal with this, you know, more often than not, the last thing that ever comes up is that <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's something else entirely. Like we're profoundly, profoundly complex emotional creatures and to dumb something down to a, a simple intention seems, I don't know, naive. And I, mm. I know that people aren't going to like that, but that's just my perspective. And I think integration is one of those unique things where it's like, I get that. You know, if you go into a profound psychedelic experience, you come out with all these lessons and you ignore them all. <laughs> and like, you're, you're not going to be all that different than when you came out. Right. You know, it's, I, I've you know, heard many people say this and I agree with it. It's not so much as the experience as is the space between them. Mm. You know, it's, what do you do with this information? You know, someone can give you good advice and you can choose not to take it. That happens all the time. You know, if you go in there and you, and you find these things and more often than not, when you go into a psychedelic experience, you're finding, you know, accepting negative things about yourself. Yeah. You know, you're, you're realizing why you say you do certain things, you know, behaviors and habits, why you lashed out at this person. And more often than not, that they stem to places that are relatively dark and then having to maneuver within yourself to accept that negativity within yourself. I think it requires a lot of effort post experience. And the space between where you're just like, yeah, I can be a dick sometimes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I have, I have issues with vulnerability. I, I have issues with a variety of different things. You know, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned through all my psychedelic experiences is that there's a very big difference between what I truly am and what I want myself to be. Mm. And it, it's so murky and interconnected and, and complex, but it's like, you know, more often than not, we all want to be something greater than ourselves for a variety of reasons. We're profoundly yeah. social. We create hierarchies and structures within our communities and environments. And we're constantly inundated with ideas of masculine and feminine beauty. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Matthew McConaughey tells me that a Lincoln Navigator is going to make me a better person <laughs> or be make me my authentic self. And it's like, okay, fair. But that's not the reality. You know, like I want to potentially be better looking. I want to be smarter. I want a different color of eyes or whatever, because that's the perception that's been put upon me. And I think part of that is this really just simply accepting who and what you are and working through all the, all the reasons why you want to be something else. And there are so many of them. Yeah. It's, I think that there's a, 
you know, you spoke about letting go earlier and some of these big trips giving you the momentum to do that, like in a, in a big move, whether you're moving houses or anytime you can begin to let go, I think you begin to touch upon the idea that you got to let go of the life you have in order so that you can live the life that's waiting for you. If that kind of makes sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's also something interesting too about the idea of letting go. Is like yeah. you know sometimes I I can capitalism or people in a capitalist system to like squirrels hoarding nuts. <laughs> totally. For yeah. for for an eventual circumstance yeah. that may or may not come. Yep. But also part of that too is our fear of loss. You know, like there's something yep. interesting about the idea that at some point I am going to lose everything, everything that I've loved, everything that I have, everything that I've earned, and including my own identity and life as yep. I you know, die as, which is inevitable. And I think the one thing to understand from that or take from that is like the sheer fact that I'm going to lose everything should not be a point of contention to be anxious. It should be a point to realize that the contrast that is provided by that loss gives meaning to the value of what you have in that moment. And we can spend all of our time looking to the future. Like I could lose this. I could lose this. I need to hold on to this. I need to keep this as opposed to just being in the moment and truly appreciating where you are in that space. Like, you know, I got a daughter and a son on the way and like, yeah. man, I fucking love that kid. And I just, you know, in, in these moments, I just be with her and I'm like, I'm not thinking about anything else. And I find, I know a lot of people that's like, they could get sick. This could happen. This could happen. We could, this could happen. I'm like, yeah, but that's not happening now. Right. Everything is okay right now. Just be in this moment and simply allow yourself to accept and love the moment that we have. You know, like it's it's one of those things. Like you live in Hawaii, you know. I, I live in Canada right now. The weather is such it's quite quite shitty. It's wet. It's damp. <laughs> but I appreciate a sunny day due to the absence of it. Like I, yeah. you know, the moment the sun's shining in the spring, I'm like trying to get sun on my chest. And it, it's almost like in an absence of something, or the perceived absence of something, gives value to what it is you know like i yeah. almost I, I had covid recently and it was it sucked but whatever and it was almost like coming out of it i was like oh man i really appreciate not being sick yeah you know thank you for for making me sick so that i can again not take for granted not being sick and i just think that some people you spend your entire life searching for something and perhaps you know just being in a moment and enjoying what you have is not a bad thing to do every now and then. You know, it's it's like everyone is white knuckling their life, just foot on the gas, trying to plan for every different future and all these different things. And it's like, that's fine, but it's trying to find that balance between just being in a moment and still functioning in a society that requires madness every now and then. Yeah, it's, it is madness. You know, this this race from the hospital to the graveyard and then fearing <laughs> death you know what i mean it, it seems like it seems like at least in the western world like we don't even talk about death i, I think there's a spiritual connection there's a psychedelic connection there because sometimes it does feel like part of you is dying you know people talk about ego deaths but we could talk yeah, about man. death of habits and stuff like that what do, you, what do you think about when i say that well like i feel like ego death gets thrown around a lot sure and it far be it for me to suggest that someone does or doesn't or not you know, I've had a handful of ego deaths before. One was specifically actually dying. 
And another time was like, you know, 5-MeO-DMT is very, very good at giving ego deaths. And just this complete dissolution of self where you really do just completely take your foot off the gas. You know, it's like that scene from Fight Club where Edward Norton and Brad Pitt are in the car and they just, you know, put their seatbelts on and let go. And it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's having that experience of completely submitting to self perhaps and then coming out the other side and being like, yeah, the ship didn't sink. You know, it's it's yeah. visceral and it's it's profound. And, you know, I, I think, again, this, this gets into the esoteric where you get into the notions of identity. You know, again, like we, we mentioned earlier, like, you know, you, you basically construct an identity. Yeah. And <laughs> and that identity becomes paramount. And there's like, you know, let's let's be realistic, millions and millions, arguably billions of years of genetic programming that make me need to have survivability baked into me. Because if I didn't, then I wouldn't be alive. None of us would be alive and we wouldn't have this conversation. And so the fight for our perceived sense of survival, I think, comes into play in a lot of these circumstances with higher dose psychedelics, where you are letting go of your perceived identity. But when you really mm -hmm. let go of it, and then you see the greater amount of what you are, which is so much more significant. You know, it's almost like the identity that we have or what I perceive as Adam, this constructed identity is almost like this tip of this iceberg. And there's this massive body of complexity underneath the water that I think most people never really get to see. And I think that psychedelics sort of illuminates that. It makes the complexity of us, the, the massive body of just sheer complexity apparent. And it's, it's very much humbling in a very significant way where you're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, a lot of the concerns and things that I have about existence, about life seem to pale in comparison to the sheer significance of what we all are. Yeah, I love it, man. I It brings up this idea. I was listening to Jules and Abigail the other day, and they were talking about um, like derealization, which is the first time I really even heard that word. But I think it touches on what you said. On on some level, I think when people begin to have a sort of long-term relationship with psychedelics, then they are able to take shed that identity. But what does it mean when you shed that identity? What, what does it mean when you're like, I fucking hate this job. We're not going to do it anymore. You know what? What about your family? I got to pay for that kind of stuff. You know, like, I think that's a real, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's a real thing. Like, you could be like, I'm not going to fucking do that. I hate that shit. I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, it's like, I, I think one of the issues is that when people perceive the idea of letting go or shedding their identity, that all of a sudden you're going to be someone alone living in the bush eating insects or something. <laughs> it's like, fair. If, if that is really where you want to go, that's, that's fine. But like, you know, I, I think it's just <laughs> shedding your identity is not so much as, I, I think it's the recognition that there are so many walls built mm -hmm. up around us that we perceive as identity, but our coping mechanisms that we've developed. And perhaps in that moment, that coping mechanism was relevant for me, but I've grown, but yet that coping mechanism is still there and it ceases to be beneficial and it becomes destructive. It, it's blocking. And so I think when people say shedding your identity, you know, I, I think it means more to the idea of shedding the illusion of identity that we carry mm. with us so deeply ingrained with us ideas of us. You know, like it's, do I, is, is the goal of me doing psychedelics to not be Adam and simply just be this Amy Forrest blob existing with, you know, absolute awareness? No, that's fucking stupid. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want that at all. I just, I just want to be Adam the best possible way that I can. I don't, 
I don't want to be all of these byproducts of, of a lifetime or lifetimes of traumas and coping mechanisms. And I think that's what the goal is, if there is such a thing as a goal. You know, that, that was actually, yeah. oddly enough, one thing that I was struggling with years ago, specifically with 5-MeO-DMT, is, is notions of identity and existence. And it's like, well, what happens if I let go of everything? Do I become that man in the forest, not speaking and just, you know, <laughs> just sitting there alone in my thoughts because I need nothing around me? But at the end of the day, like, you know, one can make the argument that we're playing roles. Yeah. You know, I'm playing the role of Adam as this, you know, simian primate, homo sapien, you know, talking monkey, moving around, moving within the earth, having relationships. And I'm totally 100% okay with it. That's fantastic. I just don't want to be dragged down by my own self-perceptions. And I think that's what shedding identity is. Yeah, that's that's good. I like that. It's breaking free of the conditioning that we have had for since grade school, you know, like mm -hmm. we've sort of been trained like Pavlovian dogs where you know, you can you can be pick one of these seven things, George. You could be one of these seven things. You know, no one ever told me I could retire at the age of thirty-three. I didn't have that option. You know what I mean? Well, why but would I, they tell you that? Because then you won't be contributing to the capitalist system. <laughs> you know, we, we you need it, it's you know, we've again, I don't necessarily know a better system. You know, communist right, hasn't worked out super well, feudalism hasn't worked out super right. well. It's difficult to go back to egalitarian hunter-gathering groups. It's probably not gonna work in our population densities. You know, but yeah, dude, like but part of it too is like, you you need to be conditioned. Mm -hmm. You you need to be conditioned to then be deconstructed. You know, like if if you just you know like my kid for instance, you know I, I'm trying to raise her in, in a way that she can function independently and create an identity. But you yeah. need to help them. You need, you need to provide them with substance for them to attach onto and, and pad themselves to to create this idea. And there's no such thing as perfect parenting, you know, it's, you just do the best you can, but then now they're in the media. Now there's social media and there's peer groups and there's all these different things that are in also influencing perhaps negatively, maybe positively, I think more often than not negatively. Like we all need to be programmed to then start deprogramming yourself. It's, it's almost a necessity because, hmm. you know, when people talk about, you need to deprogram yourself. Well, yeah, you need to be programmed first. You, you can't, deprogram something that doesn't have a program set in the first place you know and yeah we all have to grow up and make mistakes and stub our toe and fall off some shit and have your heart broken and get beat up and all these different things because you, you need adversity to build yeah. yourself in an absence of adversity then what are we you know you need the adversity to create something but in that, in the way of creating adversity, you're also creating traumas and damage. And then you get to a point in your life where you're like, okay, I can start deconstructing this. I have been sufficiently programmed, but now the program is not working for me. You know, and I, I can continue programmed and, and make my way through life. And a lot of people have, and that's fine. Yeah. I just didn't want to. You know, it was almost as if the moment I was aware that, aware of the programming per se, it was like, wow, I, I need to deconstruct this. You know, it's... Yeah. It's almost like, you know, cutting down the trees, you know, just to see that individual point, cut down the forests. You know what I mean? It's. Yeah, I do. It's the awareness of patterns has been key in my life. And once you begin to notice something, then too becomes the notice that you can change it, you know, or at least what I think the, the idea of awareness is, is key in deprogramming or deconstructing or 
in, in seeing it. What's your take on patterns and pattern recognition, not only in your life, but seeing it in other people's lives? It seems to me like once you notice something in other people, it's sort of because you notice it in yourself. Have you seen that before? Like when you see people, you're like, that guy's a fucking asshole. And you're like, no, 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 no I'm an asshole. Like, <laughs> the guy's just mirroring it to me. <laughs> well, it's like we're so okay, we're we're mammals and we're primates, right. and our our brain is designed to recognize patterns. That's what we right. do. We stereotype everything. And it, it's not bad. Well, it can be, but not in the circumstances of survival. And so like we are pattern forming, pattern recognizing beings. And I, I totally know what you mean. It's, it's almost like when you buy a new car, you know, I, you know, my wife, my wife got a Subaru Forester and I've never noticed them. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Subaru Forester's over there. Subaru <laughs> Forester. Like, you know, once, once it's become apparent to you, you, you start right. seeing them everywhere. And it's also difficult too, because recognizing patterns can be both negative and positive. Like the patterns that I'm recognizing might be emotionally brought on and they're negative patterns that I'm seeing that perhaps aren't there. Yeah. No. And it's, it's sort of an interesting concept is like, you know, you can never deal with anything or properly address something without adequate recognition of it in the first place. And you're right. You know, like I know that earlier on, you know, before I started doing psychedelics and stuff, like I would, my behavior was, was so predictable to me. It wasn't, but it was, it really was. And then now after being, you know, recognizing those patterns, I see them in other people as well, where I'm like, okay, you're, you're cascading down this path. And it's, it's because of some deeper insecurity that is now triggering an anger response because anger is a lot easier to deal with than shame or, or insecurity yeah. or or any number of things you know and I, I think that applies for a lot of people too like anger just happens to be a, a very safe emotion to express because you're not being vulnerable and more often than not i think angry people are just deeply insecure and i don't you know i'm not pointing fingers at anyone i just that's just generally my observations on that yeah it's Sometimes I, I, I've begun to see nature as a language. Like it's been really helpful for me. Like, you know, you can go out and you can sit in the garden or, you know, you can see the way like um, some ants were eating my, my psychotropia veritas tree the other day. And I'm like, what the fuck are these ants doing? They're all over. They're just eating all this shit. And then I started thinking like, I started having all these negative thoughts. And I'm like, the ants are eating this tree the same way these negative thoughts are eating my good condition over here. You know what I mean? But it's so weird yeah. to begin to see those patterns in nature. You're like, oh, hey, thanks, plant. You know, it's so weird how, how that information can be revealed to you if you just take time to look at it. And have you noticed that as well? Well, I find like nature is just fractal math. You know what I mean? Like uh, you, you yeah, see it everywhere. Well you see it in, in yep. ripples. You see yes. it in trees. You see it in fungal bodies and mycelium. Yep. You know, I feel like the entire universe is just an expression of math and, and self-repeating fractal, you know, mathematical equations. And, you know, and much like our behavior in the forms of patterns have like an interesting reflection of that. Yeah. It could be very, very, very self-perpetuating if you let them be. Mm -hmm. And yeah, man, I see that too all the time. I used to watch ants constantly. I find them absolutely fascinating. <laughs> right? Really though, dude, like, you know, know. You, you would have ants creating like complex forms of agriculture and growing like fungal bodies for food and, you know, and, animal husbandry taking aphids and milking them for food you're like oh this is fucking incredible you know and it's the complexity within nature or emergence where you have a bunch of little automatons all working together to perform a profoundly complex system 
It's interesting. So when I think of mycelium and I think of behavior, you know, I, I think of different fruiting cycles. Obviously, there's seasons and you got to grow your stuff, make sure it doesn't get contaminated. And then hopefully, you know, once you've done everything accurately, you'll start getting some some fruits that pop up. And when I look at the, that cycle of it, like I look back to the last fruiting cycle, maybe being like in the late 50s and early 60s when we saw this, you know, this medical container of first psychedelics. And yeah. then it leaves the medical container and then there's this explosion of creativity. On some level, I feel like we're in that cycle now. Like maybe this medical container is an echo of the 50s and we're getting ready to move into this new explosion of the 60s. But I don't I don't see our Jimi Hendrix or I don't see our uh, tune in, turn in and drop out. I don't, I don't you see know, those seeing the Timothy Leary's and stuff. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I guess every everything is cyclical. You okay. know what I mean? Like everything is, you know, you look at politics, you look at economics, you look at life in general, everything follows these cyclical movements. And, you know, I, I personally think that, you know, psychedelics have been with us for a very long time. And I thought I've heard people say like, oh, we're, we're now entering this experiment with psychedelics. And I'm like, I feel like the experiment without psychedelics is about to end. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to sound crazy, but I don't think it's worked all Love that it. well. You know, right. everyone's at each other's throats. People are freaking out. Polarization yep. and the ability to have conversations. You know, and even today, like, you know, you see the Paul Stamens and Rick Doblin, and and these are the new Timothy Learys, and you know, the people moving this forward. And and this still, I think, is in its infancy. Like a lot of people, are like, ah, oh, yeah, we've made it. I'm like, no, we're just putting our shoes on, man. Yeah. Like, I, I literally just tying your laces. Like, this is just starting. And I think that that stems from the ideas of echo chambers, mm. you know, where it's, I think it's a byproduct of social media. I think it's a byproduct of the internet and YouTube, where if I look at something, I'm most likely going to be bombarded with that because it's preference. And so we're, we're constantly inundated with psychedelic messaging, psychedelic messaging. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're moving and, and we are, don't get me wrong, but I just think that it's, we're at the start of the race for moving this forward, I think. Because to me, it's like, it's not necessarily about a government saying that you can use this. It's about it being accepted in a population. You know, it's it's the, the population itself accepting this and utilizing this and having an entire demographic starting to heal from generational trauma, from, you know, from our own lives, from ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's moving. I just think it's... You know, we shouldn't be calling this right now. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we've made it. You know, Michael yeah. Pollan put some shit on Netflix. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> and that, that, that's amazing. I One could argue that 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 was almost like the start of this moving forward was like public acceptance. You know, the biggest difference, I think, in the 60s was that the only acceptance of psychedelics was in a very, very small, small population of very brightly colored people behaving in a way that was so aberrant to the popular culture. And now you're starting to see psychedelics, you know, glean acceptance with a lot of demographics. You know, like I think in Canada, 80% of the population thinks that psychedelics should be utilized in some form in mental health treatment. That's incredible. Yeah. Like 80% of a population. And now it's getting that to people and allowing people to utilize these things and, you know, and not having all this weird stigma surrounding it. And that takes time. You know, like we've got 50, 60, 70 years, you know hundreds of years arguably of this weird stigma against psychedelics and it's going to take more than just five six seven years to sort of remove ourselves from that yeah i agree it's 
it's interesting. I, I like to go back and watch some of like Leary's talks and his lectures. And like the, the more that I do, the more I think that guy had it right. You know, I know people were mad at him, but I don't know. The longer it goes, I'm like, there's a well up there. You know what I mean? <laughs> pretty irresponsible, but um. <laughs> well, and I feel like I think Leary was almost, you know, I I find that a lot of people you'll do some psychedelics and you'll perhaps you realize you're God, but you don't do enough to realize that so is everybody else. <laughs> and you maybe lose yourself in this, in this idea. And I, I think Leary, I don't think he was necessarily wrong. I think he was just wrong for the time that he existed. Yeah. That's well said. You know what I mean? Like if, if Timothy Leary was, was running what he was saying, like, you know, maybe eight years from now, it might've had a very different reception, but it came off as being anti-establishment, anti-government. And at a time, you know, the Vietnam War and anti-war sentiments, it, it became like an actual sexual threat to the government. And they responded in kind as governments do with layers upon layers of misinformation and bureaucracy and, you know, criminalization. And here we all are. You know, it's sometimes races are best suited walking slowly. Mm. You know what I mean? And I feel like yeah. in the 60s, it was, let's get this out and force acceptance down people's throats. And I don't think the population in general was ready for it. Yeah. Getting, getting ahead of yourself on some level like that can, it's, it's such a fascinating time. And the explosion of creativity is, is I think, I think a lot of people that share a love of psychedelics share a love of creativity. Like there's a really unique sort of relationship there between psychedelics, whether it's psychedelic art or language or poems or music, or, you know, just like you said, having a relationship, the, the experience you had with your wife is like a union of souls on some level. You know what I mean? It's, it's fascinating to think about. Well, I think everyone is creative. It's just a matter of, you know, I look at it this way. Like, you know, if I'm 70% anxious and 30% depressed, I don't have a lot of room for anything else. Right. You know what I mean? And I find that psychedelics have that unique capacity to uncover our creativity by giving more room to express it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's amazing how many people I know, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. And I'm like, but are you, though? Like, you're, you you can just see it coming off you, the anxiety and the stress, and you fly off the handle about nonsensical things that have no meaning. And it's like, you know, if we just were able to back off and perhaps understand ourselves a little bit more and work through some of our issues, you know, I, I think creativity just flows from all of us as long yeah. as we have the capacity to experience it and express it properly. Yeah. Me too. I, I know on, on some, I think on some of your recent podcasts, you were talking about DMT. Have you seen any of these, these long form DMT experiments? Have you read about those? Or yeah. people are, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe I interviewed Kevin Thorban from the DMTX program. Nice. And Imperial College is doing one. I think DTMX is more, mm -hmm. they don't have the same constraints that an ethics department would put on an academic institution. So they can sort of pivot and twist and adjust what they're doing a little bit more. You know, yeah. Imperial College sort of started like Chris Timmerman and everything. And I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting to be honest yeah. with you. Like, I love it. Like even talking to Thorben, it was like, man, I think what you guys are doing is, is incredible. Like, look, look where we are, you know, in such a short period of time. Yeah. If you really think about it, once we know, once a jackboot's been taken off your throat as a culture, we, you know, in a very short period of time, we've, we're doing really extended state DMT experiences. Yeah. You know, going into a, a DMT experience for like an hour, two hours, like how far can you extend this? 
And then in doing it, not necessarily to see neural activity, but to understand the space, see if there's these common themes right. or right. archetypes that exist within that. And yeah, no, I think that that's awesome to be honest with you. What was what were, what were some of the nuggets you took out of that interview? What were they able to explore the environment and find objects or you know similarities or what, what were some of the highlights of that? Well, you know, it's funny when he was like, we're, we're exploring or, or mapping the DMT space. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, in my mind, picture this old school cartographer, you know, like making these maps. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like a multidimensional space. I don't even think we have the capacity to map these out. But right. I, I think it was more about, you know, seeing the reflection of ourselves in that space and potentially looking for answers about who and what we are in consciousness, I, I think is probably one of the goals, whether directly stated or otherwise you know it, it's interesting how people see similar things in dmt states and part of me always wonder like even with ayahuasca yeah. you know like i did ayahuasca and i've done it well, a couple times and i remember the first time like i knew what it was i had the idea behind it and so i saw like the condors and the, mm. the anacondas and stuff but if i was completely devoid of any pre-priming for what i was going to see would i still see that and I don't know the answer to that, but one could make the same thing about DMT. Like, it, you know, if you've read any of Terrence McKenna's books, sure. you've heard the term machine elf, you're more likely to see a machine elf. Or does that defy that? And that if you had me and I had never even spoke or read about this and I did it and then I'm seeing machine elves. Okay, well, that that's an interesting pattern that you're seeing. And what does that mean? Why are people seeing these same things? And are these entities just reflections of ourself or are they separate, highly intellectual, complex beings or entities? You know what I mean? Like it's a very interesting thing. Like I've yeah, did a very large dose of DMT before and like I very much interacted with something that was a profoundly complex, highly intellectual thing that was almost brushing me off as I was like a fly. And it was <laughs> it was humbling. It, it was wild. And you, you come out of that and you're like, what the fuck? Like, was, was that a byproduct of my own consciousness? Or was I actually interacting with something that is literally separate from myself, not existing in this reality, and yet profoundly in, in intelligent? And, you know, I think they're trying to answer those questions. However, they might be able to do that. I don't know. It's like the inner astronaut. You know, there's there's so much imagery on people going to outer space, but like maybe inner space is where we find the aliens. Maybe inner space is where we find oh, the answers. Yeah, it's like the term psychonaut, right? Like it's well, the same concept. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I used to travel like backpack a lot, like backpack, you know, two months in West Africa and Southeast Asia and India and stuff. And like, it was this, this pursuit of new experiences. And I think I got to a point in my life where I'm like, you know, I've never looked inwards. I, I'm almost like seeking validation externally, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, I, and then, you know, and now it's like, you know, the greatest adventures I've ever been on have been within myself, you know, that should be a bumper sticker, right? <laughs> <laughs> Feel free and use that, man. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it is interesting to think about the way in which we seek out external validation, right? Like, have you, have you, I've noticed that in my life, like, and it seems that when I find myself astray, it's because I'm seeking so much external validation. Oh yeah. You know? Well, and, and we, of course we're like, we're a social mammal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, if I was removed from the group back in the day, I would fucking die. 
You know what I mean? Like we need to work as groups to survive. And I don't really think that's changed. Like there's, there's a reason why solitary confinement is considered torture in the Geneva Convention, Mm. right? Like it's, it's horrific. And so I think when we seek external validation, I, I think it's biological. I think it's, it's our innate need and desire to be wanted and belonging to a group because that means survival. And one could argue that through like eons of generation and generation, the ones that were antisocial probably didn't really get all that far because you're more apt to be removed from the group and that group is is survival. You know, like I, I can think of numerous times where I, you know, want external validation and I like it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like being validated externally. Who fucking doesn't? But at the end of the day, if that if that is your only mechanism, you know, then uh, it's you're flipping a coin here. You know what I mean? Like there, there's something to be said that if I need external validation, then more often than not, I have to change my behaviors or something about me to seek external validation. And the idea to me of like social media where one mm. like is validation, 20 likes is a lot more validation. And, and you'll do a lot of things to get those. And more often than not, yeah. you're doing things that are not really reflective of who and what you are. So that external validation, I think more often than not pulls you from who you are and turns you into something that you're not. I mean, the, sometimes on psychedelics or just meditating or just sitting in silence sometimes you can come upon the idea that we're all one. And when I think about that, you know, when I think about like unity or, you know, being part of the whole or a thought in the mind of God, you know, it, it changes my ideas about external validation because then you go, Oh, I'm seeking that. I'm seeking external validation when I'm already part of the whole. So you know, on some level, I think for me and other people that I know, when you're seeking external validation that's the you're disliking yourself a little bit you know what i mean by that like it's oh like, i totally do okay you know, like <laughs> good good it's yeah. it's one of those things like well you know i i had a near-death experience in right. 2018 and and i remember coming out of that well i, I let's talk about that, that. well yeah, yeah. Can you I, say that? I can't just i can't just say yeah, that without explaining it so i was <laughs> uh, i do a lot of like woodworking because i have always okay. found it very cathartic and i was doing this uh, it was wood etching and you use basically a microwave transformer. You strip every possible safety feature from it. And then you hook it up to 120 volts in your wall. And it pumps out like 12,000 volts of DC current. And so I was like doing my thing. My buddy was there who had just happened to have taken a high voltage safety course like two weeks earlier, which was profoundly convenient. And I remember I was talking to him. And I was like mid-sentence. And all of a sudden it arced off into my hand. And like it burned my finger off and I had like third degree burns all over this hand. And, you know, it was almost like someone just flicked a switch and it was just incredible pain, like pain that didn't even make sense any longer. It was just over all encompassing. And I couldn't even think because the amount of energy. And I remember at one point, like forcing a thought and it was like, I don't think I'm breathing. And then all of a sudden I just felt like I was falling for like a really long time, but not fast, like a slow descent which was weird and then it was just like just waking up in this place that i had always been and i wasn't adam i wasn't anything it was just this raw awareness of absolute contentment and i remember like seeing spherically from a single point outwards and i say seeing you know people associate your eyes but it was almost like okay a, a single point of awareness moving outwards and it was like maybe 
outer space and like these gas clouds in the distance. And it was like mostly just nothing. And I remember just existing and it was perfect, like just perfect. And time really didn't have any meaning. Nothing did. I, I just, I wasn't anything. It was just awareness. And then all of a sudden this frequency started washing over me and it was like gasoline on water and these fractal patterns moving. And it was like this juxtaposition of communication. It was just perfect. And it was, it was emotions, it was feelings. And I, there's this overwhelming sense of like, this is okay. And then I just sort of started feeling myself being pulled into pieces and just becoming the universe. It was like literally just every part of me was just merging with the universe. And then I started being electrocuted again, which in hindsight was me being defibrillated. Whoa. And then all of a sudden I like snapped in. I'm like, I'm Adam, I'm in space. Something's not right. And it was like this weird, not panic, but like, I know I'm dead. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. Like this is, you know, I, I feel like I lost my opportunity. And then I was like, you know, alone with myself for what seemed like a really long time. And then I started being electrocuted again. And then I think I vaguely felt myself being pulled or sucked or something along those lines. And then I woke up in an ICU bed, like almost immediately afterwards. And I was just like, ah, and I was in a coma for like eight hours after that too. So I like wake up and I'm looking around and it was weird. Cause I'm like, I like, I could have been gone for centuries. Like I, you know, like I remember like trying to touch my face, my hands were all bandaged and to see if I had like a beard or something. Like I remember the first thing I asked, <laughs> like they extubated me and I was like, how long has it been? And they're like, oh, it's only been like nine hours. I'm like, wow. Like I would have thought it was forever. And it was funny, like, you know, how it was like being downgraded from like a supercomputer to like a Commodore 2000, you know, going from like 580p to like 16-bit. And it was like really disappointing. I remember just sitting there and after the, you know, the hugs and everyone's happy, I'm not brain dead. Mm. I remember like just touching myself and being like, what the, what is this? This skin suit, this really inconvenient bag of meat that breathes like i was so hyper aware of breathing i remember like peeing and being like this is bullshit man <laughs> and and i remember like and it, that lasted for like a, like a, over a month anyways and i remember like telling my wife at one point i'm like none of this shit is real and she was like ah <laughs> and i'm like no like it's it's fine but this isn't real you know what i mean like this this is the dream yeah and that was that was whatever real might be but it also made me hyper aware of like the fact that in that space of that absolute contentment makes me aware of how biologically programmed we are to feel anxiety, to be happy, sad, horny, hungry, angry, you know, jealous. All of these things seemingly are like biologically related, you know what I mean? Like a, as a means of experience mm -hmm. and in an absence of that, it was just perfect. Like it really was perfect to the core of whatever that might mean. And, you know, and I think that, you know, a lot of people ask me like, oh, is that why you started doing psychedelics? And mm -hmm. I'm like, actually, no, that was like right in the middle. <laughs> it was, you know what I mean? And it, it was a, a really interesting experience, but it was almost, you know, we talk about that notion of validating, but it was almost like, hey, man, that was, that was a very personal experience, but it completely dovetailed with all the other psychedelic experiences. And it's, it's almost interesting to know too, is that that was an endogenous DMT release. You know what I mean? Like recent uh, research has been done at Michigan U and they found that you know, like any given time we have amounts of DMT in our brains that are equatable to serotonin and dopamine. 
You know what I mean? So like yeah. DMT is like a very powerful neurotransmitter existing in our brain that people just sort of kind of ignore, you know, uh, serotonin, dopamine are the reasons why we feel and think and do these different things, reward, you know, pathways. And whereas dimethyltryptamine is present in our brains and another research they were doing where they put rats into cardiac arrest and do monitoring of the cerebral spinal fluid. And it was showing like a six fold increase of dimethyltryptamine in the neural system during cardiac arrest. You know, so it's almost as if like I had my own little private, perfectly choreographed psychedelic experience when I died. And it was like, you know, a mix of 5-MeO-DMT and dimethyltryptamine being produced in my brain. And there's interesting arguments for why that is. You know, it's it's a neuroprotectant. Maybe yeah. that's just a mechanism yeah. to prevent, you know, neural death in an oxygen, you know, low oxygen environment. But at the same time, it gives these profound experience of like oneness and wholeness. And, you know, it's it's hard not to take away from that, that we are just singular. But, you know, I, I it's funny that from that experience, the one thing that I would draw from that is that we're all just facets of an infinite complexity experiencing itself subjectively. You know, to know thyself. That there mm. only is really one thing, but life itself is just a mechanism to interact with itself, to know itself. Yeah. You know, and that stems back to that idea that you're talking about how, you know, seeking external validation in a way is seeking validation from oneself. And it's like, yeah, in a way, you were just seeking validation yeah. from a bunch of really flawed, semi-broken talking monkeys all running around. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. And it's, it was a really cool experience. And, you know, it's funny about, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm like, no, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. You know, scared a lot of people, but I profound. You know, th that brings up this idea, you know, like when your kid falls and like wrecks their leg or their knee or their head, they, they, they get wrecked, they're bleeding and it looks bad. As a parent, like the last thing you should do is be like, oh, because like when you put on the scary face. Oh, I know. Is, you I know. know what I mean? Like that yeah. external validation makes the kids scared. And what I've learned is like that never goes away. Like, and the same thing that you just brought up when people are like, oh my God, I'm sorry that happened to you. Or like, you know, you, you quit your job or walk away from your job or something like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. You're like, I'm not. Like, that's the same thing in a way. It's like this external, the world looking at you like, oh, I'm so sorry. And you're like, fuck, I, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. You know, but people don't understand that in some way. It's weird to see other people's interpretation of horrific events when for you it's not like and you would think death would be you know oh jesus adam i'm so sorry that happened and you're like it was the greatest thing ever yeah like, those, awesome. those moments are fascinating it was me, right you know un unfortunately it was like my third best 5meo trip but <laughs> you know like it was still like it it was yeah it was it was amazing but i know it's it's everything's so subjective right and we right. all there's like social cues and yeah i need to most likely this scenario would be damaging to you. So I'm going to give you a statement which anecdotally makes me recognize how scary this might have been. And that's, mm. I get that. But you know, it's funny when you talk about like my daughter, she, she's crazy. She's up this, she's climbing up this. Right. And I try and just let her be. And I'm like, hey man, watch your feet. You're, you're, you're up like, you know, like three, four feet right now. It's going to hurt when you fall. And then every now and then she falls and I try, like my, my reaction is like, oh, sweet. I, I just want to go over and give her a hug. Yeah. But I'm almost like just very calm and be like, hey, you okay? Here, come give daddy a hug. Let, let's yeah. talk about, you know, 
watching where our feet are when we're climbing things. But you're <laughs> right. Like, you know, if I'm like, oh my God, in this massive emotional response. Yeah. Because kids are always looking to you to mirror their behavior. That's that's all they do. Yeah. They don't know how to be. They need to learn from someone else. And it's really hard to be a good role model. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't want her hurt. It, 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 you know, part of me would love to just keep her completely sheltered her entire life, but then she would be a shitty human. Yeah. So, you know. I do know. It's interesting, too. I had a friend a while back that um, he took a, like a really large dose. I mean, well, he took a, probably like 12 grams, which is a pretty big dose. Yeah. And then yeah. the next day, he had had a heart attack. And I, the he was wiped out, man. He was dead for like almost 12 minutes. And the, the, the paramedics came, and they were shocked. They shocked him like four or five times. They finally brought him back like on the fifth time. Took him to the hospital, put him in a coma for like three days. And like they were preparing his family. Like, you know, um, look, people don't come out of this, man. You know, he's going to – if he does come out, which he probably won't, he's going to be – he's going to be gone. Yeah. Yeah. And he he came back like full recovery. He's he still got like some guilt and stuff like that. But like, and then I couldn't help but think like I recently talked to someone about um, psychedelic or psilocybin being a neuroprotective, and all the doctors were like, "I don't know how this happened, man. You should be dead by all accounts." And for him, he's like, "You know what it was, George? He's like, it was that big dose I took. That's what saved my life." He's like, "You know, I, I had these crazy." And he he explained his DMT trip while he was in that state. But I don't know of any particular like um, medical experiments or anything that have been done that talk about psychedelics probably prolonging brain function. I know there's tons of stuff on neuroplasticity, on you know dendrite strength well, and, and stuff. Or there's, uh, there's research done with NNDMT given to people okay. post-CVA, so like strokes. So you've had okay. a stroke and then they give you intravenous low-dose strip of dimethyltryptamine and shows incredible recovery. I didn't know that. So- you know, and, and you, you could look at that from perspective, like, okay, well, if you were taking it before you had some sort of experience that was causing global neural hypoxia, would that reduce the overall damage? Mm. Okay, fair enough. No one's really done that study yet because A, you would have to. <laughs> okay, listen, this, yes. just calm down. We're going we're gonna to induce a stroke and we'll see what happens. But first, we'll give you this. So, yeah. So it's, you know, it's difficult too because a they're scheduled substances. It's very yeah. difficult to do any research on them, hence by right. design. And then now we're entering an age where you know the reins are being loosened a little bit. But then again, too, there, there's ethic components to this because yeah. you know to do that study, okay, you can do it on rats, and rats are not unreasonable and all this to human brain function. Like we're both mammals, but it's not the same thing. You know, rats and humans are not the same, but they're right. close enough that you can draw conclusions to then go on human trials. But it's, you know, interesting. It's like, you know, my dad was diagnosed with dementia four years ago, maybe. And it, it was intense. Like, you know, I think we're just, you know, chalking up to, ah, he's old, no big deal. And, you know, he's getting forgetful. And then it just, it really doubled down over the course of two months where, you know, he was in my shop and he was asking me like, like 25 times in 20 minutes, what type of wood I was working on. I'm like, dude, it's fucking Elm. Like, are you okay? And my mom took him in jack psychiatrist and they basically gave him the diagnosis of like classic dementia you know pet scan blood work everything and they were basically like we know he's probably going to be requiring long-term care in six months to a year the way he's progressing and so you know i talked to my mom she's a very educated human and i'm just like listen here's the research for 5-meo dmt and here's the research for psilocybin 
like there's no other effective treatment. Everything is just more just delaying symptoms like Aricept and, you know, there's all these anecdotal hyperbaric chambers and different things. And so she was like, fine, you know, like there's, there's nothing to lose here. So I put them on like two milligrams of 5-MeO DMT succinate, which is a salt, which is absorbs mucosal membranes in a metered nasal spray and hundred milligrams of psilocybin a day. And both of which are sub sub threshold for a psychedelic experience. And within like four months, he was like, you know, I actually, I came over and I heard him playing guitar in the basement. I come down, he's like, he's doing like blues riffs. I'm like, dude, I'm like, how are you doing? And he just, he just came back. Like, you know, his cognitive test went from like 55 to 82 over the course of six months. And he gets cognitive tests every six months. And they're still, they didn't go up with that same significance as initially, but they keep going up you know, a couple points here and there, a couple points here and there. And, you know, you talk about the idea of a reduction in neuroinflammation and neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and all these things. And like, I can't think of a better example of that anecdotally perhaps, but shit, like, you know, he's holding his own. He is probably what he was like 10 years ago, cognitively. Like, Dude, that's so awesome. Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's unfortunate that by the time any research actually gets past all the hurdles and then turns into a compound that can be distributed to the public, mm -hmm. that's going to be like 15 years. You know, it's a lot of people are going to die and a lot of family members are going to have to deal with that slow decline of cognition and how horrific that is being on, you know, the other side of it. Yeah. How come... Uh, why is that story not in Rolling Stone? You know what I mean? Like, why is that story not all over like the New York Times? Or I think people are hesitant. You think so? You know, I, I really do. I, I think people are hesitant, you know, for ideas of, of, of saying something that's sensational or, you know, and, and it, which is, seems counterintuitive to what the news media is anymore. Just one <laughs> fucking ridiculous thing after right? the next elicit emotional responses in people. But I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's sensational enough. I, I think, you know, like it's, it's been in a, a couple different articles yeah. I've been interviewed because like I, I damn near screaming this on a mountaintop being Amen. like, Hey, you know, someone take this up and do something with it. And there's a variety of companies that are, there's some in Florida, there's some in Europe who are looking at creating non psychedelic monogamous compounds to treat mm -hmm. neurodegenerative conditions and, and fine, but that's still like decades, you know, away from being a product that can be administered to people. You know, like even on my podcast, I've talked about it a couple of times and people will message me and being like, hey, I, I'm, I'm doing what you're doing, what you did for your dad. And I'm I'm noticing positive re re like results in, in my loved one. And I'm like, you know what? Good for you. You know, and I know a lot of people will be like, oh, microdosing, 5H2A receptors and so forth. And like, you know, I'll say my dad's had echocardiograms every six months as well. And there's been no valve hypertrophy, mm. no abnormalities with his heart. And so whether that is him specifically with his biology or that the concerns of valve hypertrophy are, well, I think the conserve of valve hypertrophy was based off of a weight loss medication combination from the seventies where a bunch of obese women took it for a period of time. And then they all, several of them died of you mm. know, <laughs> valve failure. And, and then I think that concern of having these receptors innervated, but it, this compound was a very significant innervation of them. And I think that concern about heart problems with that stems from that. And I'm certainly not going to suggest that isn't or is a realistic concern. 
but at the very least it hasn't been in 100 milligram of dried mushroom material in my father's case so yeah it's it's fascinating to think about the possibilities of what could be if we if we had the you know it it's interesting how medicine moves but that's a whole other i don't want to go down that rabbit hole like hey, <laughs> snail's pace you mean yeah unless there's a pandemic then we can then we can pass it uh, and then you can pump shit out over <laughs> yeah. but and, and again that that comes down to it it's is you weigh the pros and cons of a situation versus overall liability and you have people deciding ethics who may or may not feel that empowering psychedelics is good or not good you know what I mean? It, it's an interesting thing. Like everything is so profoundly complex and right. everything is just weighing the pros and cons of how many people are we endangering versus doing this or not doing this. And, you know, I would argue with psychedelics, the biggest hang up is the fact that they're scheduled substances. You know, if they, if they were never scheduled, well, this conversation will be very different. We probably wouldn't be having this conversation because the psychedelic Renaissance would have taken off in the sixties. Yeah. You know, we have all kinds of medical treatments for neurogenerative conditions and, you know, adjuncts to psychiatry and all these different things, but that's not the case. And so here we all are. It just seems on some level, like the science of it seems like an exercise in futility. You know, I was like the level of complexity to understand what's happening inside the brain is nobody knows. Like it's a, it's a fucking guess. Like they're guessing what's happening in there, but yet they're going to spend millions, maybe billions of dollars trying to figure out, Hey, is there something else besides the five H two A over? Like we don't know, but we do know it works, but we don't know what's happening for the mechanism of action. Like that just seems like, I don't know. What I know, doing. man. Like I, you know, the rate of suicide in first responders and veteran communities. And, you know, we have something that is effective. Yeah. You know, something to use. And like, and there's groups that are are treating veterans yeah. with Iboga and 5-MeO-DMT and people who are, are risking their freedom, their medical yeah. licenses to help other people. And it's like... You know, I, I think those people are heroes personally, Agreed. but at, at the same time, it's almost, I want to say nauseating that, a good word. you know, the bureaucracy, you know, the bureaucracy, this massive, massive machine that takes anything and makes it profoundly complicated more so than it needs to be, is sort of grinding their heels on this. Like in Canada, like, you know, you can get psilocybin and MDMA prescribed to you through the federal government, you know, kind of like Australia. But, uh, you know, we're where Australia were a couple years ago, where I can apply to the special access program and say, with my doctor, who says that Adam needs psilocybin because he has treatment resistant depression, or he has PTSD and needs MDMA. And that will get granted within a period of time, but it's, it's not super accessible. It's right. really inconvenient. But yet it's like, okay, so we've been using these things. There's, there is surprisingly a large amount of research on psilocybin. And yet there still is this massive hangup over it. And again, you know, with, with politics, I'm like, I think the government, you know, testing the water to see like, if we legalize psychedelics, is there going to be a public backlash that might be prohibitive of us being reelected? Is this going to look good on us? And, you know, sometimes I feel like a lot of political parties are show up late to what society actually thinks. But we're coming up to another federal election, a federal election in 2025, and I would be surprised if psychedelic psychedelics didn't come up. You know, like we're we're in the middle of one of the largest mental health crises I, I would say the world's ever seen. 
you know, opioid addiction and just general absence of resources or, or effective means of treating people, you know, like it just the idea that, okay, you're upset. Here's some medications to tread water because if it turns out we don't have the time reasons or money to effectively treat your issues. So here's a couple tools that you can do on your own to try and deaccelerate your anxiety or your PTSD. And it's like, okay, well, here's this other range of compounds that if taken in a supervised environment with people who, you know, are trained to facilitate, you can work through decades of traumas and not just tread water, but to, you know, do laps of the pool. But again, too, right? Like it's, I, I know, I, I know that I want to see that and I know it makes me angry that it's not there. Well, angry is a bold statement. I, I find it vaguely funny and ironic that these things exist but yet are not being accepted but again too you're seeing bipartisan support you know in the american political system where you have republicans democrats uniting to try and find treatments for veterans and i think once it's established as a treatment for veterans you're going to see this trickle in effect for other people and, you know and it's they're saying that 2025 is going to be the year that mdma is going to be federally legal as per maps but who knows you know, C CBD is still federally legal as far as I know. So what the fuck? Like, yeah. Who it's knows, interesting. I, do you have any thoughts on the psilocybin isn't a panacea statement? I honestly, I think it is. <laughs> but, but again, too, it's, it's how it's how you look at it. Okay, break that down if, for us. Okay, so like if if modern Western medicine is designed around... You know, I have high cholesterol. I'm going to take a pill. I can still eat bacon. I'm still going to not exercise. But I have this pill that that allows me to not change any aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. I have high blood pressure. I have this. I have that. I just take a pill. I don't have to change any part of my life. And yet I can continue behaving in the way that I want to behave. Right. Whereas psilocybin, that, that is not psilocybin at all. Like psilocybin is work. You need to look at yourself you know, in the funhouse mirrors and really get to the bottom of who and what you are. It's not a one and you're done. Well, for some people, perhaps you might be able to get what you need. But like, for me, it's been a very long journey of right. unraveling myself. You know, like, I hate to use the onion metaphor, because I, I don't know, I just don't like it. But yeah, man, like it's layers upon layers of this profoundly complex emotional integration with oneself. And you're, you're unraveling that. Is it a panacea in the sense of, I don't really know of any other way to do that. Perhaps a lifetime of dedicated meditation might mm. be the only thing equatable. You know, yeah, but I think it's the perspective in which you look at it. If yeah. if the meat, like, if the public perception is that I'm gonna take a couple grams of mushrooms and I'm all my problems are gone, well then no, it's not a panacea based on the perception of how you think it's going to work. But if you acknowledge that this is not just an antihypertensive medication, that you just take and go about your business. This is like, you know, you're being vulnerable with yourself. And there's something profoundly scary about that. You know, like I, I can yeah. be vulnerable with any number of people. And if they reject me, I'm like, fuck it. And I walk away and I bury that emotion. Yeah. But if, when you're vulnerable with yourself, you really have nowhere to run. You know what I mean? Like you, you're, yeah, you're in you. this with yourself yep. and you're like, yeah, okay, man. Like, let's take a couple deep breaths and let's get into this. And it's, it's scary. You know, some of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had have been on psychedelics, but also some of the most terrifyingly scary experiences of like confronting these deep-seated fears and notions yeah. of existence and the existential crisis of life. You know, it's 
So Pansia, yes, based on perspective. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of wish like we could change the terminology around. Like if we could call mushrooms like exogenous neurotransmitters, I think that that would help out a lot. You know, because it it on some level it seems to me to be doing similar things. And like it just be a, first off, it rolls off the tongue really nice. Yeah, ENTs, <laughs> boom, problems. You know, what I, yeah, it's like all right. <laughs> Get some ENTs in you. Yeah, that sounds so. It sounds so well, smooth. Words are are always loaded, right? Of course. Like, you know, meaning. the whole sticks and stones kind of concept, and like, yeah. fair enough. But like, no, words have very significant meaning that that is generational to some extent. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like the stigma surrounding the words used to describe psychedelic experiences can elicit fear. It can elicit, you know, reminiscence of prohibition and yep. criminality. And that's a hard thing to get rid of, you know, but, but again, too, it stems back to the fact that like, you know, it's going to take a while to wash away mm -hmm. criminalization and prohibition of these substances. You know, it's, it's just how we are as a species, you know, you, you can't just change us overnight. Right. And I say us as a collective whole, like it takes time for people to be convinced subconsciously of something and change the narrative and change the meaning behind words. And, you know, like God, the term God, it's a, it's a loaded statement. It's a loaded word. You know, people think of very specific things. You know, me, when I think of the word God, I, I think of just this infinite complexity. Most people think of a bearded sky daddy, you know, and that's, that's the integral meaning behind words that it just exists in a culture. You know? Yeah, I do. Adam, fascinating, man. I know you gotta pick up your daughter, man. But um yeah. <laughs> this went way too fast, man. I you gotta come back. We gotta have some more some more conversations. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're really a fun person to talk to. And everybody listening to this, if you enjoyed this, go check out Adam Tapp's podcast where he talks to some of the most unique, amazing people out there. And I I can't recommend it enough. But before I let you go, Adam, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Uh, tapped into psychedelics is my podcast and it's on like Spotify, Apple, whatever, yeah. just look for it. It'll probably show up. And oddly enough, like, you know, we started that avail scientific and then we did a sub company called unveiled science clever. And we're actually working right now. We've, we have approval from the Thai government through a partner in Thailand to do clinical trials in thailand for right. microdosing and i kind of want to do one on you know everything unfortunately like you know with the easiest path to research is off the shoulders of other people and there's sure. so much research out there about tryptamine psychedelics and depression and anxiety and there's very limited information on neural regeneration and so we're kind of working towards doing the clinical trials on alzheimer's and dementia with psilocybin and it's, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm That's super, epic. it kind of is, you know yeah. what I mean? And it's, it's one of those things where you're just like, you know, and that will, would validate a lot of the, the things that people are experiencing when they're self-medicated or medicating their family members. And it's like, yeah, man, you know, I've been trying to get people to start doing research on this and talking to people about psychedelic conferences and people are, but they're also limited Sure. By the by, the system that is the FDA and and Health Canada. I'm not suggesting that's necessarily bad, but it's one check after another check after another check after another check after another check. 
and the Thai government, they're very enthusiastic about this, about, you know, they have an aging population, you know, let's be realistic. The entire world is aging yes. very, very fast right now. And, you know, baby boomers and all these people, they're going to be going into this and there's no effective treatment. And I think the Thais are very on that. And I think they want to move forward with this as well. So that's, that's something that's pretty exciting as well. Man, that's super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, hang on briefly afterwards, Adam. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, I hope you had as much fun as we did. Go check out the Tapped In podcast. Check out Adam. That's all we got for today. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.